But anyway, pretty much since the end of, uh, since we built a temporary building, which is no longer standing, on the other side of the road, and had and started in about 1990 to have classes every Wednesday morning. We've had classes every Wednesday morning, and we still do. And for a while it was me, and then after, I don't know, 20 years, Donald joined me. So Donald thinks we're together now 10 years. That's probably true. And uh, now when I'm not here or Donald's not here, it's... uh, Heidi or Grace, um, but we'll both be here for a while. I really have been thinking this morning about uh, I'll start it with us sitting, but I want to tell you a little bit about what I think we'll talk about afterwards. I'm thinking so much about what a different community we are coming to practice now 40 years after. And in some ways, it's the same Dharma, but in some ways, it's um, it's different. One of the things that, well, 40 years ago, uh, the word Dharma was pretty new in the West and the idea of practicing uh, uh, practices that come from the tradition of Buddhism was a strange one for people in the West and lots of people wanted to know about could they continue to be a Christian and be studying something Buddhist and uh, how many times I had I responded to the question about how can you be both a Jew and a Buddhist and uh, I got very good at the answers to that about it's not about being it's about practicing extraordinary practices that were handed down in such a clear way from the Buddha and such a clear understanding of the way that the mind tangles itself up in suffering and untangles itself. It's not about joining practices that help the mind to live um, in an engaged and enthusiastic and grateful way in a world that's increasingly troubled and confused, and um, and that's still the same. That's still as true as in the beginning. But I've been thinking about most recently in the last few months, and in this month that I've been away, is uh, how much what happens, how much the focus of why people come to practice, I think, is changing from. I'll practice and something will happen to me. Uh, There's a seat right that's empty right here in the front. It's nice to see you again. Uh, how much? I think people came to practice originally because of um, a sense that I'm going to do this practice and I'm going to become enlightened and I'm going to be free of suffering. It was true, it still is true. But I think what is equally becoming true is I'm coming to practice because it's really hard to live in the world with the level of stress that's now in it. And not only do I want to uh, reduce the stress in my own mind and see clearly, but I want to take action to make this a world that people can live in. 
uh, the coming to age of a prophecy that I heard in the very first days of my practicing where people said, you know, Buddhism has changed every culture that it's moved into. It was born in uh, who wasn't a Buddhist, uh, who taught what he was teaching. Ideas spread through China where they became elaborated as Chan Buddhism and then moved 500 years later, 800 years later to Japan where they became Zen Buddhism and they moved into uh, Tibet and became Tibetan Buddhism on top of the practices that were already happening in those in those cultures. Uh, the teachings have moved to Western Europe and then to the United States and the West and now the whole world. And um, it was Toynbee who said every, every that Buddha came in, that the Buddhism arrived at was changed by Buddhism and Buddhism was changed by the culture as well as it moved on. And so it becomes not a fixed thing but um, an evolving practice that is in relationship with practitioners uh, remains suffering, but the um, the f- the focus of um, whether it's a personal practice or um, collective practice uh, has changed a lot. Certainly, in the West, one of the things that's changed is the emphasis. as the emphasis for real practice, I think, has changed to that as an option, but that people can actually be serious practitioners in their own life involved in the world. It seems to me very... um, I I remember thinking about that remark by Toynbee about the world is being changed by Buddhism and Buddhism is being changed by the world. And I think that that's happening and we're... Uh, we're in the middle of it, and this place got built just at this at this point in Buddhism in the in the West. Anyway, I want to talk today about that the what do we now know about the uh, about Buddhism and Buddhist theory? I'm kind of excited about the fact that um, not kind of excited, excited. Period uh, about. Uh, uh, I got invited, I'm telling you this because I got an inv- invitation that I'm excited about from uh, my friend and so, someone that many of you have met, my friend Cliff Sarin, who is the um, a mindfulness researcher at the University of California in Davis and uh, uh, very much involved in mind and life uh, organization and research um, about mindfulness so that uh, apart from the fact that he and his wife are good friends of mine and his wife is a cellist who often plays here at ceremonial events, uh, that he's arranged a conference. The end of the sentence in a minute is going to be, he invited me to come to it, which I'm going to do next week and the week after. It's arranged, and I, I said, I'll come, but I'm certainly not going to say anything. He said, no, you don't have to say anything. You can just sit there and listen to it. 
but he's arranged a conference of 20 people who are researchers in their academic fields of mindfulness research and psychology and neurobiology and Buddhist um, um, studies teachers who are academics who really know a lot about Buddhism. It's arranged a conference uh, of 20 people, each of whom has written a paper about their work where they are right now. And uh, so it's 10 days of conferencing starting next Monday. And uh, every day, two people, morning and afternoon, are going to present a paper. But it doesn't have an audience. It's, it, the audience is these 20 people are talking to each other. And on top of those 20 people talking to each other are 20 graduate students that have been particularly selected from all over to come and listen to the last word and all these things. And then, because I happen to have this end run, because Cliff is my friend, he said, why don't you come? and sit in the back and listen. So I'm thrilled, and I am taking it on. Somebody said to me yesterday, I'm thrilled for you because I feel like you're going on behalf of me. Take notes. So that I'm just telling you that because I want to take notes, and I'll come back, and I'll tell you what they said. <laughs> so that's why I won't be here for the next two weeks. That's, one, that's an announcement about why I won't be here for the next two weeks, and it's what I'll talk about when I come back. Here is one more piece of information that just I'll forget it otherwise. On the back table, there's a book called um, God Loves a Stranger, which is um, uh, a expression of uh, these are the expression in anybody's religion about love your neighbor as yourself. And there are expressions of saying that in... Uh, in a Jewish context or a Christian context or a Muslim context, uh, expressing, I think, where we are talking about in a Buddhist context of may I, be friend, may I be free of enmity. There are no strangers and I don't have any enemies would be the place in life where the mind was content. If my mind had no enemies in it, which is why, by the way, I mentioned uh, Tony's practice which I admire tremendously, <laughs> but, I, but it's hard for me to do. But that be able to have the kind of expansive heart that says, you know, this other person has other ideas. Anyway, my, my friend Sheila Weinberg has written a book called God Loves a Stranger, which is partly a personal memoir. Sheila Weinberg is a, uh, a rabbi. She's the founder. She's the mind, main founding mindfulness teacher of the something-something Jewish... Institute for Jewish Spirituality Mindfulness Teacher Training Program. That's what she is. And so it's for people who would like to hear... Anyway, she's written this book. She was out here on a speaking tour. I had seven books left over in my house. I said, what should I do with them? She said, bring them to class. People might want them. If you want it, you can take it. If you take it and you want to, you can put a check for $18 in the envelope that's already addressed in the book and mail it. So take the book if you want to. All right, now we get to sit.
think I think every week about liking to start saying why we're sitting for some reason. Um. <laughs> At this point, I think it's the only thing left to do. <laughs> I was that this is the morning for stories. Joseph Goldstein was said one day when we were in Hawaii. Uh, um, uh, having taken precautions against an imminent tsunami that we couldn't escape from, at a room this size, uh, on the second floor of a building, waiting for maybe a tsunami to hit the shore. And he said, well, we've done everything to prepare. Now we just... Um... He said, we could sit. He said, there's this famous Zen master that someone said to him, what would you do if all the waters of the east and west and the north and the south were all rising at the same time? What would you do? He said, this famous Zen master said, I would just sit. So he said, so, we'll just sit. And the tsunami never came. Let your mind and body assume the natural peace and ease. Let your body relax. Let your shoulders relax. Nothing that you need to do here. Nothing that you can do here. How these next 25 minutes, 30 minutes? Let your mind rest. Eyes in your body, you can let them pass. Just to settle your mind down, following the breath in and out. Out and space between and in and out. But also you could just let it rest. Janamara, who taught me that meditation, said that that's the natural state of the mind is resting. You don't have to do anything with it. It's caught up in accidentally attaching itself to a thought or a story.
Our habit to save the last several minutes of the time that we sit quietly together. Mention aloud if anyone feels like it. Most particularly these days, especially when the mind settles down a little bit and we feel personally at ease. That or around the edges of the mind is not so distracting and we get to feel or think about what really is. The rest of the community turns out to be a really... I'm thinking of my friend Rachel a lot these days who well, I had Sloan Kettering in New York. her a lot and I'm also thinking of um, my grandson and his uh, new wife together is uh, going to be as magical as their wedding
May we all be strengthened by the sense of all we feel. our lives. I often find myself saying that um, that last five or ten minutes of us sitting every week most profound teaching that I could possibly think of to do or that we could think of to read about. It's like, uh, it's not as if we forget from week to week that everybody is vulnerable and that everybody cares and that everybody wants so much for their kin and the people that they love to thrive. But we don't have so many opportunities, I think, to feel, first of all, how much our own um, well-being is connected to other people being well. As if I forget how much I love the people that I love how dear my people are to me. Because if somebody said, are your people dear to you? Of course, I'd say, of course they're dear. But when you, some, there's something about hearing other people talk about people who are dear to them that allows me to recognize, oh yes, that's the, that's the thing we share, all of us. Each of us have different lives and some of us don't know each other at all. But what we know is that everybody has a whole life out there and in here that's full of people that we care about, with whom we rejoice. I'm guessing about you that we hear about so many uh, painful and difficult things that are happening to people. Suddenly we hear about triplets somewhere that are going to be a year old. And that, that's like a really, uh, like one of those super things. Like a lot of people have birthdays today, but not a lot of triplets have birthdays today. That's a big thing. 
I was thinking about the ability, uh, thinking a lot about the ability of um, the ability of the spirit to be lifted up by goodness or by or just by by good acts that people do or by wonderful good fortune like triplets getting to be a year old triplets getting conceived triplets being born triplets getting to be a year old that we rejoice in it and we, it doesn't even have to happen to us happen to somebody at the start I have so many things I want to talk about and I always have this thing about where will I start with it because there's too many things to talk about I'll start with uh, I went to Glide Memorial first of all I went to Pan- I went to I went to Ecuador. I went to Ecuador because my eldest grandson, who was 30 years old on the 9th, got married. Uh, And uh, the woman that he married, are happy and they are in love. And it was, um, and we went down. Much of my family was there. So it's a big, it was a big go, and uh, somebody said to me, oh, uh, weddings in Latin America are big deals. And it was a big deal, and it, it had a tremendous uh, um, momentum about getting ready for it. It was a pageant, and it was great, and I loved it, and I'm very happy for him. And I love being in another culture, and I love speaking another language when I can. And I came back, and uh, and I was feeling tremendously buoyed up because uh, when I'm away from home, I'm not watching cable television, and I'm not reading the newspaper. And it's not like there's no world out there. There's a world out there. But uh, that's not what we're dealing with right then. Right then, we're having a wedding, and... What matters is when should the nail polish people come, and you know, uh, and who's going to go where, and who's walking in with whom, and uh, and all of a sudden, because it's a big deal, it fills up the mind, and it's like you could. I thought to myself, I could actually forget. That. I could, I could accidentally forget to worry. That was the line that I thought. I could accidentally forget to worry about what's going on in the world, and uh, which sounds like it sounds like a. It's not the first time in my life I've thought I, I could accidentally forget to worry. I thought about it years ago, and on a meditation retreat because I was feeling. Many of you who know me quite well know that. I have a lot of experience with being um, um, a worried person. I tell people I'm a recovering fretter uh, because I am. I come from a long line of, or not, I can't even put it on the long line because my parents weren't such big fretters. But uh, for whatever reason, my parents, my genes, my upbringing in the 1940s, whatever it was, uh, my children tease me about it. They say, uh, uh, here's the headline, start worrying, I'll talk to you later. But, you know, that when in doubt, worry uh, is a family joke. Uh, but uh, the idea that I've been thinking a lot about, you could act, your mind could feel so relaxed and so at ease 
that you could forget to worry. It's just a habit, worrying, really. I mean, being concerned is something that uh, we want to be able to be reasonably concerned. The traffic is difficult, you want to be concerned. When your child is running a fever, you're concerned. When they're not doing well in school, you, you get tutors, you do things. Concern brings some sort of constructive action. How many people here know the difference between constructive action <laughs> and ruminating worry? Anybody knows the difference between those? Or gratuitous worry. Like, but all worry is gratuitous. Why worry about it? You can't do anything. Worrying is not going to accomplish anything. That's a very sad thing to say to an inveterate worrier because they not only feel sick from the worrying, but now they feel disparaged on top of that because they know it's true. They know it's true, that it's ridiculous to worry. It doesn't make things better. Be concerned, act on it. The world situation is very concerning these days, and I am thinking about it. I'm trying to think about it, and I'm trying to be active, and I'm trying not to worry obsessively about it. I'm trying to be active. Um, and so some of the things that I've been thinking about are uh, about uh, really when I said before what's left to do except sit what am I going to do that's going to keep my mind steady enough to figure out what's the right thing to do over the last several years I've been really emphasizing my sense that the definition of mindfulness has got to really end with well start with the practice of mindfulness is the practice of knowing clearly, grokking. It's always seeing, but it sounds like it's visual. But understanding fully what's arising, what's happening out there, what's happening in here in response to what's happening out there, and being able to see it clearly without, without not seeing it, without cringing, uh, without insisting that it be different, say, this is what's happening what should I do now? And that the what should I do now, which in the text is called clear comprehension of purpose, is really the important thing. It's not just what's happening, like a clinical thing, okay, anger is arising, anger is arising, anger is arising, discomfort is arising, unpleasantness is arising. Say, what is going on? And why is it, you know, what's the source of that? What's the fear behind it? And what should I do? When I said before, partly in joke, that uh, Tony can listen to those programs and, and not get distraught about it, it's because somehow he is managing to keep himself unfrightened. Because when I become frightened, I, when anybody becomes frightened, they become distraught. How will I keep my mind clear enough to know what's the right thing to do? And how will I have the energy and the will and the determination to do it. And that, I think, comes right back to what really needs to be an emphasis in teaching mindfulness practice and compassion practice in the 21st century, that it's not just about figuring out how I'm going to keep my mind balanced in such a world, but how is what I figure going to help me make a decision so that the world will be my teacher but also my recipient the recipient 
of what I do. Years ago, the uh, Thich Nhat Hanh said, I think that the next Buddha is going to be the Sangha. And everybody thought, well, they, everybody always thought that whatever Thich Nhat Hanh said was great. I thought it was great that he said that. But I didn't until fairly recently take that seriously about, that, uh, uh, literally seriously. I've always thought that daily life is, is really mindfulness practice, that I go out in the morning and the line is too long at the gas station. The line is long in the gas station and it's taking more time than I wanted. But how to be able to say, well, you know, next time I'll leave earlier. Now I'll be a few minutes late or whatever it is. That all day long we're managing to say, hmm, this isn't what I expected. What should I do now? This isn't what I expected. What should I do now? I think we're practicing mindfulness all the time. And especially, what should I do now? And in these difficult times, what should I do now? Just not to just keep myself above water, but to keep myself being inspired to go out there and make a difference. Somebody said something very interesting to me yesterday. So I wrote it down. I said, I'm going to reflect on that sentence. Um... We're talking about what's the difference between mindfulness uh, and compassion. And now, these days, uh, uh, it's uh, more or less standard, at least in Buddhism, to say that loving-kindness is one attitude of the heart and that compassion is an attitude of the heart that arises in face of difficulty. Uh, when when you come upon a a highway accident where it's just happened and there's paramedics and first responders, you think, oh dear, that uh, I imagine you think maybe sometimes I think to myself, this is, I think all of a sudden, oh look at this, it's so crowded on the highway. Why don't people carpool? I'm not going to be home on time. I really blah blah blah, self-serving and irritating and churning up the mind. And then you hear a siren, and then you come, and you see there's already two first responders there, and there's been some dreadful accident, and somebody is not going to get home on time. And then, I don't know about you, but I think to myself, oh, first of all, I feel bad for this person. And second of all, I feel badly for myself that I indulge in a little self-serving stuff before actually thinking, you know, somebody's probably haven't, not going to come home tonight or have a bad time. That somehow that connects me to the situation, <clears throat> dreadful as it may be. And so I come home a little later, but I come home feeling part of a world in which things happen, like accidents on highways. Reminds me to drive a little more carefully. Reminds me to keep my mind not in a contentious mood. This is like from the really from the sublime to the ridiculous. My mother-in-law, long of blessed memory, long, long of blessed memory. We'd be leaving a building to go out to do something, and uh, oh, I'd open the door, and it would be raining outside, and she'd say, "Oh, just my luck, it's raining." Like the world is waiting for <laughs> Dina to go out on her errand, and it's raining on her. Like the whole world is lining up on behalf of her. It was just so self-preoccupied, you know, that there's a whole world out there and there are people all the time hungry and dying. And 
So uh, yesterday I was thinking about, and I wanted to talk with you about, the fact that some time ago I read uh, a definition of uh, mindfulness that said every moment of mindfulness is an act of compassion. And then I thought about that, and I like it more and more. Like, like, like not you have to wait for a highway accident or a bad diagnosis to have a feeling of compassion that every moment in which I do not complicate my experience, my life, by messing it up with, I need it to be different, I need it to be other, I don't like this, fooey, look what's happening, all the kinds of tapes that happen quite by habit. All the times that I don't do that, every time that I say to myself, huh, this is what's happening, I wonder what's going to happen next, which really protects my mind's equanimity, protects my mood. Every time I do that, that's an act of compassion to myself. I don't make my situation worse than it is. Situation, a moment of mindfulness is an act of compassion. And if I really think about it, if I think about life being difficult for everyone, the, the more time goes by, the more I think that the first noble truth is really, really true. That being alive is difficult. For everyone, it's not. It's not that I don't want to not be alive. You know, I I enjoy it. It's also glorious and fascinating and interesting and full of delights. But it's complicated for everyone. I was thinking the other day. It's too long of a story to tell, but I was thinking about there was a joke that I learned in, as a as a child. Yiddish was my second language as a child. It was probably my first language, and then I learned English. But it's some joke about somebody telling somebody else that his mother, uh, his mother is such a wonderful Yiddish speaker that she can say anything. She's absolutely the most fluent Yiddish speaker in the world. So, uh, and it's a long, complicated joke, and not funny to not Yiddish speakers, I'm sure, but. <laughs> At some point, so the friend says, ask your mother how she, how she say, how to say disappointed in Yiddish. And then ensues a long conversation where he calls, and then the conversation is in Yiddish, and then both speaking and him saying, okay, mother, do you know what day of the week it is? Yes, it's Wednesday. What's the day, the day after tomorrow going to be? It's going to be Friday. And what's going to happen on Friday? Well, you're going to come for dinner on Friday. And I'll certainly make a, a, a Shabbat dinner for you on Friday night. And mother, how will you feel if I don't come to Shabbat dinner on Friday night? And she responds in Yiddish, I would be so disappointed because disappointed, apparently in the joke, does not have the exact cognate or this mother person's mother in the joke so he mispronounces with a Yiddish accent disappointed I would be so disappointed so I think I've been thinking about it you know I've been thinking about it since I'm five years old and I heard that joke but I I'm thinking about he can say disappointed in other languages I can say it in disappointed in other languages but in some way we're continually being disappointed about we want it better, we want it longer, we want it different, we want it thinner, we want it this, we want it that. Uh, that it's another way of saying the perennial thing about desire is the cause of suffering. 
but not desire in the sense of oh, lust or something. Just it's got to be different. This is what it is. It's that, by the way, is my you know one of my favorite Zen type sayings. It's like this. This is what it is. Let's see what happens next. Not precluding making a big effort that what happens next should be different and go out and do something about it. That's a whole little riff on what I'm thinking about is that I want to stop saying this is mindful moment and this is a compassionate moment. I think every moment of mindfulness is an act of compassion. and Every moment ought to be an act of compassion because what's ever happening it's a thing that's happening and it won't last. It, it'll here until it's not. And uh, there was a woman who came on Wednesday mornings for a long time and got at one point more and more pregnant and it was her first pregnancy and she came back a couple of months after the baby was born and the whole group was very happy to see her and everybody did great congratulations and how is it and she said you know she said it's great now it's wonderful and baby is great and uh, I don't even remember if she had the child with her at the time. Maybe one of you was there. But she said, the thing is, when I became pregnant, everybody said, congratulations, terrific, wonderful. And then when the baby was born, they said, congratulations, terrific, wonderful. Nobody told me that I had mortgaged my heart for the rest of my life at that time, which is really like, ta-da, after, you know, how many people share? I'm concerned about my son or my daughter or my grandson or my granddaughter that's it you know you, you, you don't you don't finish with that uh, that's 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 my current thinking i'm really so eager to go and hear current thinking on mindfulness because i think i think these are old scriptures that are translated into English by 19th century Victorian writers. And I'm th- I think it's all compassion. If you look around and you think about it, and even the weather is perfect today, but all over the world, it's, you know, it's, it's hitting record highs in different cities all over the place. It was 110 in Los Angeles the other day. There's some really terrible climate change things that are happening as we see them. But I wanted to talk about the ways in which, I will at least start by talking about ways in which when we forget to worry things, we feel like we have the strength. I went to Glide Memorial on Wednesday, on Sunday morning. How many people have been to Glide in a while? Uh, I hadn't been in a long time. I was very happy to see that Cecil Williams was there. That I, you know, it's been so many years. I thought for sure he wouldn't be there, but he was there, and he was there uh, as part of the introduction of a new member of the Glide clergy, and the new person who was installed is Rabbi Michael Lezak, who was until last month one of the rabbis at Congregation Rodef Shalom. In San Rafael, I know him well. He officiated at the bat mitzvahs of bar mitzvahs of a couple of my grandchildren. He's a lovely person, and his passion throughout his clergy life has been um, social activism, 
as religious practice. Which I think is uh, where religious practices that are surviving and thriving at this point is is going to have to end up being. Uh, I think a month or two ago, I read to you from uh, the most recent copy of Buddha Dharma, a magazine which you can surely find in the bookstore, where the editorial page was written by Bhikkhu Bodhi. Bhikkhu Bodhi is a man who's my age, who was born in Brooklyn at the same time that I was, and who became a Theravada monk uh, as a young man, and has been a prolific writer and translator of of texts for lo these many, many years. And Bhikkhu Bodhi, a Buddhist monk, scholar, is talking about now the practice that we do has to be not only seeing what causes suffering in the mind, but recognizing that there are a lot of uh, institutionalized um, social conditions in the world that create suffering. So let's not just call suffering our own personal angst in our own mind and our own personal disappointed. And let's say, let's really recognize this. In, it, more and more as I read this, the, the recognition is that greed and hatred and delusion are equally the cause of social institutionalized racism and sexism and um, all the isms. I, if I just could find... Ah, ha, ha, ha. This is by John McCransky. John McCransky is... Uh, a person, uh, a Dzogchen teacher, prime, to begin with, trained by Lama Suryadas, who was trained in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition and is still teaching. And you may have heard or read some of the things that Lama Suryadas has written. John McCransky is a, uh, a Buddhist studies teacher at Boston College. Uh, And I just want to redo a little bit of this. Uh, John McCransky, by the way, uh, well, I'll redo a little bit. This paper argues that effective, compassionate action must address two kinds of human cause of sufferings. The first kind, pointed out by Buddhist epistemology, which, by the way, is a word I never quite got the... I couldn't tell you what, I get get the sentence, but I don't really know what epistemology means. The first kind pointed out by Buddhism, Dharma, are universal human tendencies of misperception and misreaction, tendencies of delusion, greed, and ill will. Greed, hatred, and delusion. The second cause of suffering pointed out by Christian liberation theologies are socioeconomic conditions which incorporate individuals into destructions of inequity that organize resources and ways of knowing in oppressive ways. I would also like to say everybody's liberation theologies. I don't think that it's limited to Christianity. I don't know that... I, I, I don't want to take away any credit from... Christianity having that, uh, at least in the last hundred years, is a very strong tradition. 
I guess I had in my mind at this moment that Rabbi Michael Lezak is now working for Glide Memorial as the, doing things like the prison project and working for political change where it needs to happen. Effective contemplative practice is essential to address the first cause of suffering, diluted misperception and reaction. Since social analysis alone does not remove the pervasive unconscious misperception that some people matter more than others, a misperception that distorts anyone's attempt to build better social systems, we need to be doing these practices to cultivate the human capacities of discernment, love, compassion, peace, courage, and creative responses essential for effective work of social change. Contemplative practice that lacks social analysis may also prop up oppressive structures by improving people's ability, prop up oppressive structures by improving people's ability to tolerate but not challenge those structures. This is hugely important. This is John McCransky talking now. It was Bhikkhu Bodhi in the last issue, the editorial in the last Buddha Dharma. Um, there will always be a, 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 an important foundational base for contemplative practice, but that, that the contemplative practice manifest in some way and make a difference in the world. I won't read the whole thing to you, but... I won't read the whole thing to you because I want to read some other things, but I'm, I'm thinking this is where it's changing. Bhikkhu Bodhi, John McCransky. In anything that you want to look at... Oh, in Glide the other day. A lot of people have been in Glide. Recently, where are the people who have been to Glide? Not even recently, ever, ever. Okay, so that you know, no hymnals, no prayer books, no, um, it's a very, really seriously diverse crowd of people there with enthusiastic greeters so that when you arrive in there, you feel very welcomed. Uh, with, when they come around to stay the place in the service where most people do this now. Synagogues do it. Churches do it. I, since I teach all around, I, I'm not unaware of, let's turn around now and greet our neighbors and make some gesture of peace. And usually that takes 15 seconds, 20 seconds. Glide takes a long time. There is seriously people move around and seriously look at people and either touch them or hug them or give them a kiss or something or other, but mostly touching so that you really feel it's not perfunctory. And what, at least I don't know about everybody else, but when you finish, you feel really good. You just hugged a bunch of people that you don't know and you wish them a good day and everything good and bless you and all that. That's really, I, I think to myself, it goes back to what I said earlier about Sharon said, we'll sit around and pray for people. A 60-second or two-minute telling people, I hope you're well, bless you, have a good day, may you feel wonderful. It's a great thing, and you feel blessed. 
by doing it. That's not news to you. And of course, there, there's no reading. Uh, the, there's, it's also, there are cameras, projectors that project the name, the words of things that you sing on the back wall behind the choir. But the words you could learn without the words up there because they repeat the same words over and over again and they're words that everybody could sing. Like love is the only thing that makes sense and feeling loved is... I'm making it up. But there's nothing that's not true there. Feeling loved is what's the best thing in the world. The sense of holiness is what keeps me going. All those kinds of things. And you sing it over and over and over again loud with amplified band music and a lot of clapping. And I thought to myself, uh, there are numbers of people who uh, knew Michael Lezak from here and who went to hear him do his first sermon. Uh, about doing good deeds in the world, that the righteous keep their eyes open the definition of righteous is keeping your eyes open to see what needs to be addressed and doing it. And it's a line from Psalms. And it's written in Hebrew and he's teaching people how to read it and say it. it really, it's a brave new world. Some places, not other places. I'm not aware of that. But I think to myself, it's important for me to keep having doses of spirit lifters and doing them purposely because we could all use it. That's it. Uh, <laughs> like uh, the, um, I'll, I'll tell you what else I'm reading these days just to give you a heads up about it. I'm reading Naomi Klein, No is Not Enough. Who read this? It just got published. So it's interesting to read Naomi Klein. I bought it by accident. <laughs> Naomi Klein is an amazing contemporary thinker. Uh, no, I don't want to say anything bad. She is an amazing contemporary thinker. She has a more strident tone than I feel very comfortable with. So that halfway through this book, I skipped to the end, uh, which is the same as what I did with her other book, Climate Change. Uh, this changes everything. It's a fantastic book about the significance of climate change. And I couldn't stand past halfway because I really got the message it is terrible. And corporate greed and personal greed is the cause of it. And I just couldn't take it anymore. So now I have to go to the back of the book and see what to do. And in the back of it, and I did the same thing in this book. And the fault is mine, not Naomi Klein's. She's an amazing writer and brilliant, and there's nothing that she says that isn't true. It's just, everybody has, really is affected by different tone of voice. Everybody on the back who says this is fabulous is a fabulous person to say that. So I'm happy about that. But there are two things I want to particularly tell you. One of the things is that um, the, beginning of this, the beginning of this book has some chapter, starts with shock and its effect on human beings. And that uh, 
what she's addressing is the fact that we are living in a very shocking time. You know, not only is the news, you, you see it. Well, the first time I saw this in, in, in shock and awe when they, when the, in the invasion of Afghanistan. And I was in the, I was, I, I was in a, I was in a gym on a treadmill with a whole bank of televisions like they have in gyms and cardio rooms. And I'm on the treadmill and all of a sudden, shock and awe. And I'm, the, and I'm on the treadmill and I'm seeing what's happening and I realize that I am seeing in real time people having a war. You know, it's not news film that's coming back. It's someone embedded in a tank who's taking this picture and I'm watching it. I'm running on a treadmill. And there's people around me and I, I had this weird feeling about how, why are we all running on the treadmill here? Why don't we all like at least get off the treadmill and turn them off? And, you know, get down on the floor and bang our heads against the ground or, or wail and gnash our teeth and tear our hair out. I mean, how can we be standing, standing here, running on the treadmill, while people are getting killed in our very view? What a, you know, what weird people we're... Anyway, I remember that, and that's now 2003. And... Uh, so here we are 15 years later, 14 years later, and talking particularly about since the uh, beginning of this current presidency, that every day the news media is filled with some shocking thing that at this point everybody knows for the most part is, is it, it's either, it could be factually true, but then it's factually horrible and unbelievable and then being lied about and... She says the, the cumulative effect of that is the mind gets so, like, it's like, like a fighter, well, it's a bad image because I don't like the, the image of fighters in a ring. I can't watch prize fighting because people get beat up too much and then they have to wait till they're really semi, you know, they're in a bad way and then they call the fight. But that kind of punchy look that people have where you can't think straight. And she talks about it being actually a technique that's being used by the powers that be in order to make everybody hysterical, in order to then be able to do yet more terrible things than what are now being done. It's terrible. I don't even like saying it to you, but you know that already, that, that the uh, safeguards of the EPA are getting rolled back maximally all the time that things that it took years and years to get enacted are getting rolled back, that the climate change clock is, you know, maybe past tick down, that uh, it's 110 degrees in Los Angeles, that the principal polluter of the world is um, the uh, uh, cooling agent in air conditioning, and there are new cooling agents, but the whole world would have to be transformed over into new cooling agents. And the poor people are not going to have that. And disproportionately, people will die, start to die, from the heat and the drought. Because of greed and really perfidy, not a mistake of thought, but really rank perfidy. And the, and the line that John McCransky said, from the misperception 
that some people's lives are worth more than other people's lives. That's really it. It's all right that a lot of people will die, but they're not us. And talking about us and them. So I'll, 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 I, I feel I honor bound to tell you something a little bit um, a little bit uplifting because in the end in the end um, she says shock tactics rely on the public becoming disoriented by fast moving events they tend to backfire most spectacularly in places where there is a strong collective memory of previous instances when fear and trauma were exploited to undermine democracy those memories serve as a kind of shock absorber providing populations with shared reference points that allow them to name what's happening name what's happening and fight back it's a lesson i learned when i glimpsed another kind of future on the streets of buenos aires over 15 years ago at the end of 2001 the beginning of 2002 argentina was in the grips of an economic crisis so severe that it stunned the world in the 1970s, the country had opened itself to corporate globalization so rapidly and so thoroughly that the International Monetary Fund held it up as a model student. The iconic logos of global banks, hotel chains, and U.S. fast food restaurants glowed from the Buenos Aires skyline, and its new shopping malls were so fashionable and luxurious that they frequently drew comparisons with Paris. Time magazine on its cover declared Argentina's economy a miracle. And then it all came crashing down amidst a spiraling debt crisis. The government attempted to impose yet a new round of economic austerity. And all those gleaming gold global banks had to board up their windows and doors to prevent customers rushing in to withdraw their life savings. Protests spread across the country in the suburbs, supermarkets owned by European chains, were looted in the midst of this chaotic scene, Fernando de la Rua, then Argentina's president, went on television, his face shiny with sweat, and announced that the country was under attack from, quotes, groups that are enemies of order and are looking to spread discord and violence. He declared a 30-day state of siege, which gave him the power to suspend a range of constitutional guarantees, including freedom of the press, and ordered everyone to stay in their homes. For many of the Argentinians, the president's words sounded like a prelude to a military coup, and that proved a fatal misstep. People, no matter their age, no matter their age, knew their history, including the fact that when a military, the military staged its brutal coup, in 1976, the need to restore public order against internal enemies had been the pretext. The junta had stayed in power until 1983, and in that time it stole the lives of some 30,000 people. Determined not to lose their country again, and even while De La Rua was still on television ordering people to stay in their homes, Buenos Aires' famed central square, Plaza de Mayo, filled up with tens of thousands of people, many banging pots and pans with spoons and forks, a wordless but roaring rebuke to the president's instructions. Argentinians would not give up their basic freedoms in the time, name of order. Not again. 
not this time. It's a vayan todos, everyone must go, is what they were chanting. Demonstrators stayed in the streets even after protesters were killed in clashes with police. The president was forced to flee. Meanwhile, the rebel of Argentina's democracy, something strange, and three weeks later and wonderful started to happen. Neighbors poked their heads out of apartments and houses and in the absence of a political leadership or a stable government began to talk to each other, to think to each other. A month later, there were already some 250 Asambleas Bariales, neighborhood assemblies, small and large in downtown Buenos Aires alone. It was like Occupy Wall Street, but everywhere. Streets, the parks, and the plaza were filled with people who stayed up late into the night, planning, arguing, testifying, and voting on everything from whether Argentina should pay its foreign debts to when the next protest should be held to how to support a group of workers who had turned their abandoned factory into a democratic cooperative. That's the first of one of, uh, of a number of uh, hopeful things that she le- ends the book with. But mostly people at some point, this is the one hope, I've got to stop and say, okay, now we have to do it together. We have to really go out, stop, talk to the neighbors, do all over again, really get rid of everybody. I tell you that because one of the things that I'm thinking about these days is how how am I going to keep myself from being depressed with the shocking things that are going on. I had such a good time being away for three weeks because I wasn't knowing what was going on. Then I came home and I knew what was going on. It's terrible what's going on. And quietly and quietly, and I think to myself, all of this everyday and new horrendous lie is just so all these, these restrictions can be, in the meantime, signed into law. And the healthcare, who knows? I think the healthcare will not get changed. I think the healthcare, there are too many people, even Republicans, signing off, saying, you know, I'm not going to do this. This is, we came too far. Maybe. How am I going to keep my mind uh, alert enough to say, okay, people got deluded in this uh, election. Naomi Klein says we don't have to worry about this being the end of democracy. The end of democracy, she says, has already been hap- already happened. It is now the corporate state. You know, they're not going to dissolve it. It's already the corporate state. It is because of the what is the name of that? Um, corporations are people. I forgot the name of it. the so Citizens United. That's already a corporate. It uh, been dismantled, but it's not in Britain. And they voted out Theresa May. And it's not in France. And they voted for Emmanuel Macron. And uh, I think that Europe is going to pull itself out at the last minute. They almost lost it. But I think they may not. The other book I've been reading, and uh, really, really enjoying is a uh, a book called um, Behave, and it's by Robert Sapolsky. Have you read it? 
it is a chore. Let me let me show it to you. It is seven hundred pages. It's got um, it's got uh, tiny little uh, uh, footnotes, and I'm about halfway through, two thirds. It's the first. I I not a, I have read every word and every footnote. It is totally beguiling. Robert, who knows who Robert Sapolsky is? Robert Sapolsky teaches biology. Wait a minute, what's his thing? He's a um, um, he's a, he anyway. He he teaches. He's a professor of biology and neurology at Stanford University. The recipient of a MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant. He's got a tremendous big beard. He looks like Santa Claus, and he and his first first book, which I really enjoyed is called The Primate's Memoir and uh, he also wrote Why Zebras Don't Have Ulcers and that's easier to describe the, the zebras and the ulcers do you know why zebras not zebras not giraffes because they have no means of fighting they don't attack people they're herbivores and if you leave them alone they just munch away for their life but they can protect themselves because they have tremendous running capacity. And if they smell tiger, they get their nervous system gets such a hit of uh, what, whatever it is, uh, uh, cortisone, glucocorticoids, or whatever other, adrenaline, glucocorticoids, whatever it is that measures alarm they can take off and outrun lions and tigers and jaguars. So they run until they can't smell that smell of tiger anymore. And then they stop and they, you know, at a watering hole and they start again to eat and drink. And apparently people have measured the level of glucocorticoids and how do they, probably with blow guns and I don't know how, but anyway, they measure that. And apparently, they're right back to normal again. They're, they don't stay alarmed. And he said, that's because they don't, like, think it over about... Like, if that happened to us, if we suddenly turned around and had a lion and had to outrun it, I mean, and we outran it, we'd call a hundred people and we'd say, look what happened to me, I can't believe it, I'm never going to go on that bike path again, look at the lions. And, you know, I've been there so many times, how could this happen to me? You know, we make a big story out of it, and then we we get frightened. I can't leave my house. There might be a lion outside. We build a whole story about that. And so he's really talking about... So this is a book that purports... To, that is synthesizing everything that people know about biology and neurology... Up to this point, about biology and neurology and how it all works and how social groups work that they go <laughs> and it's full of anecdotal not anecdotal fact factoids he says here's another little useless factoid but they're not useless they're very interesting which just are making me be a little bit more of a careful thinker for example uh, years ago I heard a story not a story I heard the fact that I heard the fact that in a in a uh, in a uh, preschool with two year olds and three year olds in a pre preschool 
um, if a child starts to cry, falls down, starts to cry or something, other two, two and a half year olds will pick up a toy and bring it over to that child. So people have always remarked about that anecdotally. It's not, it apparently happens enough that people notice it. And they say, you see, uh, compassion is innate in human beings. Here, two-year-old's distraught, and another two-year-old is trying to comfort it. And Sapolsky says, maybe. Maybe that's what's happening. So on the other hand, maybe what's happening is that two-year-old starts to cry, an anguish cry, which uh, alarms this other child, that sound of anguish that's coming up, for whatever reason. Wow, that could happen to me too. That the sound is alarming to it. And so in order to address their own alarm, they run with a toy in order to stop that child from crying so their alarm will get better. So, so he says, you know, sometimes it's possible to look at a scene and say, look at that, isn't that sweet? He's taking care of the other person. Maybe she's taking care of herself and her own fear. And the way that we see things, I've told way too many times to tell it again, so I won't. Like the, the two stories of my being helped with my luggage in, uh, in France. And on one occasion, someone said... Uh, who said, Madame, I'll help you, and ran up with my suitcase up three flights of stairs, put it on the top step, looked down at me, and waved, and disappeared. And I went up, and there was my suitcase, and I came home. On another occasion, another person on a platform in France said, Je vous aide, Madame, and took my suitcase and carried it into the, the car for me, and deposited it in what looked like a safe place against the wall on the other side of that door in front of a man that I didn't wasn't particularly cognizant at that point but apparently was this person's accomplice who pickpocketed my purse and my passport my money and everything else as we went around a curve between that station and the next station and then got off. And he said the same thing. The doors of the train opened. He said, Je vous aide, madame. So the first time that that happened, uh, I remember coming back to Spirit Rock and uh, telling the story, which was in the context of, uh, it was a very hard time. My husband had taken ill in France. He subsequently got better. He's fine. But I said, you know, that, that one person helping me with my suitcase was just the right time. It was not only that he helped me with my suitcase, but I remembered that people are inherently good and that people are inherently going to be looking out for you and you don't even have to say, would you help me? People are looking around, they'll see that you need help. That's completely a figment of my imagination. Some people, that person, helped me with my suitcase. The other person ripped off my passport and my money. <laughs> And I, since I have a certain, and I, looking at a two-year-old, would think, wouldn't that sweet? Look at that. They're helping out this other person. Who knows if they're moved by compassion or they're moved by their own distress. So this is just fun for me to read because it's how to think. Uh, they're talking about uh, uh, fighting. I, I'm just trying to think of what would be an anecdote that's close enough 
uh, he particularly studies baboons. There were troops of baboons that he studied as part of his graduate work. In the first book, A Primate's Memoir, which is really fabulous. If you want to just order an easy-to-read book, not this one, but you should read A Primate's Memoir, because here he is like a 23-year-old graduate student by himself in uh, the African jungle, uh, making a tent and living there for some long period of time in the middle of a troop of chimpanzees where he blowguns them and then runs and gets an anesthetized chimp and runs it into his tent and is drawing blood samples and uh, measuring um, uh, cortisone, uh, glucocorticoid levels or something. And it's uh, just very sweet to think about this ardent graduate student doing that kind of stuff. Now it's 20 or 30 years later. But he goes back and he has spent practically every summer with those same baboons since. He says, when a baboon is who is king of the hill uh, and really is the primal, uh, alpha male in that, gets uh, uh, challenged by a younger male, sometimes he triumphs and he stays the alpha male. Sometimes he doesn't triumph and he gets defeated and the new baboon is the alpha male and this defeated baboon, he says, slinks off. Defeated. And I didn't say that he can't say all the time. He says, I watched him slink off defeated and really seriously rape one of the female baboons who he passes who was not an estrus, not at all interested in him, fought like mad, but it's like here he's slinking off and he's got like, you think to yourself, is it his morale? He had to raise his morale by, you know, attacking this poor female. Or what does that mean? Or what does it mean in terms of, does it mean he's a bad, bad boy? Nobody taught him properly about how to have baboon etiquette. But you really you think about things and then you think about well, even that, I mean, there's nothing to laugh about, but think of the level of of assault, particularly on women, worldwide, for things less than you're not king of the hill or anymore. And what is that? And is that in, in, all, in the bodies of all primates? And um, One of the things that's been really fun for me is to read a, a, a something like this where... It challenges me to watch what I think so that um, they say to, uh, oh, I don't know. I guess I, I, I was saving an email for um, to tell it to you about uh, that uh, my friend Cliff Saren, who invited me to uh, come and, uh, uh, whatever you call it, sit in the back of the room. What do you call that? Witness, I guess. Audit. That that class next week uh, is one of my most fun people to discuss this stuff with because I'll say, well, it seems to me that da 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 And I'll say, well, maybe, but couldn't it be? Is he somebody who's trained? I, 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 I got trained as a chemist 50 years ago, 60 years ago. I didn't get trained to think about 
things like these kinds of, couldn't it mean this, or couldn't it mean that, or couldn't it mean this? And then I got taught Buddhist psychology of when the mind is at ease, the heart is kind. How do I know? You know, if I ask my friends, they say yes, yes. When I'm relaxed, I have a much better heart on everybody. I think about even the people who did me wrong. And I feel I ask all of you, when you're relaxed, don't you feel more spacious about people? People even you don't, you know, that did you some wrong, you think, well, you know, they were having a bad day, or, you know, they, their lot in life hasn't gone well. So it seems like that's true. Look around in the world, so many people are out actively trying to do bad things to other people. Is that really true? Numbers of people who are doing scams on old, I don't know what the numbers are, but people who are doing scams on old people. And my husband routinely gets phone calls, well, not routinely, but more than once has gotten phone calls that purport to be some, one of his grandchildren being held hostage somewhere. And I don't know how they got his phone number or... or uh, how they know that his grandson is named so-and-so. But think about the numbers of people in the world who are in in uh, train stations lurking to steal, to pick pockets or to call grandparents. Or, so it's not, it's not, um, it's complicated. The name of this book is The Biology of Humans at Our Best and Worst. <laughs> you know that <laughs> No, that, that's totally great because it, it actually is. There are some people in subways who are carrying your bags and some people who are stealing your stuff and there are some baboons that are wasting time fighting with each other and other ones that are busily babysitting and thereby getting extra perks. <laughs> it's just that... Like, <laughs> If you don't know, there's a complex answer to everything. Anyway, it's it's fun to be back. I really am happy about it. And I'll see you in... Um, 
I'll see you three times in August. I'll be back, I guess, on the 2nd and the 9th and the 16th. But I'm going to go to school next week and learn everything up to date so I can tell you about it. And uh, if you want one of Sheila's books, be sure to take it. And may all beings be peaceful and happy. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.